0: Welcome back to the Foster's More Than Law podcast. I'm Miri Stickland, knowledge development lawyer in the commercial real estate team, and I'm joined today by Helen Streeton, who's a partner in our commercial real estate team. Hi, Helen. Hello, Miri. How are you today? I'm good, thank you. I'm also joined by Elizabeth Small, who's a partner in our tax team. Hi, Elizabeth. Hello, Miri. And finally, last but not least, obviously, by Matt Evans, who's a counsel in our planning team. Hi, Matt.
1: Hi, Miri.
0: So, we're here today to try and provide some insights on the build to rent sector. And um, there's been lots of news stories from, from the sector, sort of all over the property press for the last few years. Um, and recent figures forecast by Ascend suggested that uh, BTR completions are projected to double by 2025. That probably demonstrates a shift both in um, end users' attitudes to owning their own homes, but also in terms of ever increasing investment into the sector and some recent figures indicate investment levels in 2020 were reportedly up by 30% on the previous year which is pretty amazing given the issues that we've been grappling with over the last year or so. So I guess with all of that in mind Helen would you like to just start us off by talking us through the kind of sites that you're seeing being acquired for BTR schemes?
2: Sure thanks Mary. So um, as Marie says, the, um, the market for BTR is ever expanding and not a day goes by in the property press where we don't hear about somebody else uh, going into that market, whether it's to forward fund a scheme or by what we call a stabilised scheme. But when you're looking at site assembly, if you like, right at the beginning, I suppose the starting point for a developer is always going to be what scheme is it looking to build? Often with build to rent, you're looking at quite tall towers. So obviously the developer will be looking at the footprint of the land, Uh, it will be looking at rights of light issues in the local area, particularly considering the the height of the towers, Uh, and it will be looking at uh, infrastructure connections, because obviously Build to Rent is focused on, generally speaking, young professionals who are going to want to get to wherever they're going quite quickly, so transport connections are really important. So with that in mind, you know, there can be a number of uh, types of sites that people look at. One is obviously a bare site. That's nice and easy if there's nothing there. The developer will be looking at development constraints and and checking out uh, not only rights to light, but other title issues and uh, connections to service media, etc. So the bare site is one thing we see very often. Uh, Another type of site is one where you've actually got an existing building on, on a site, which might be something a developer is looking to convert to built to rent, particularly under the PD rights, which we'll look at a bit later. Or, or it might just be looking at buying the land in to demolish and start afresh. And I think that is another very key aspect of, um, of site acquisition here, because parcels of land are, are not necessarily readily available. So I think really that in a nutshell, that they're the types of sites you're looking at.
0: Thanks, Helen. So, Elizabeth, I know that you would always encourage people to focus on their tax structuring, but why is it particularly important to focus on tax structuring at the outset of a BTR development?
3: Well, with BTR, there are often tight margins, and so it is important to manage the cash flow. And by managing the cash flow, I mean making certain that one considers the amount of VAT that is going to be paid up front, if any and also the stamp duty land tax cost. So uh, Helen sensibly mentioned that a BTR development can start off with either a bare site or perhaps an existing office block that might need converting or indeed demolishing. Now, obviously it's gonna be critical to understand the different VAT costs and SDLT costs that attract to those different buildings. So for example, if one is buying an office block, can we make certain that we get the, that treated as a TOGC? And in that way, well, there is no VAT that has to be incurred up front, and therefore we can manage down the SDLT liability. Because, and this is going to be a feature, uh, an important feature of BTR, is that the supply that the landlord makes to the eventual tenant is an exempt supply. And that means that the landlord can't recover the VAT that it is being charged. And so it's really critical to make certain that one understands the BAT charges up front. Thanks,
0: Elizabeth. So, Helen, just coming back to you, who are some of the key players in BTR (laughs) from a developer, funder, operator point of view? And what sort of what stage of the project will they sort of start to interact with each other or come on board?
2: Sure. Thanks, Miri. So we found the site. Great news, hopefully, uh, based on some of the kind of parameters I was talking about earlier on. What do we need then? So the developer is the person that, generally speaking, has gone out and and found the land uh, and worked out that it thinks it can uh, get planning permission to build a scheme there and that there won't be too many development constraints or if there are any, they can be overcome. So the developer typically brings expertise to the table. They typically are well connected to a broad range of consultants who can help them, particularly at an early stage on the planning side. And they will have a number of relationships with contractors who um, may may be specialists in BTR, maybe not. So the developer is the first player and the key player. And the developer, if you like, Cooks the development. It needs to kind of get the development far enough along the line to bring it to the next player that needs to come in, and and, and there are two two people generally involved in build to rent. The first is the the big money, and that will be provided normally by a, a forward funder, uh, or a bank. And the developer typically won't have the cash to fund the development, so really does need a fund on board, and a fund will have. Uh, many specific requirements so it's very important to get the development to a stage where you can present it to a fund coherently and so that it's a credible scheme. The other um, player in the build to rent market is going to be an affordable housing provider because as Matt will speak to later there there is almost inevitably a need to provide a certain percentage of affordable housing within the scheme whether that's shared ownership or rented or often a mix of, of those two things, and so often the developer will start engaging at an early stage with potential providers that it that that it's aware of and perhaps has dealt with before, so that when it brings the project to the main fund, it can show the main fund that it's got the planning permission or is likely to get the planning permission, and that it has somebody that will will fund the building of the affordable housing, because normally the main fund will not do that. The affordable housing provider self-funds its own scheme. So they're really the three key players that we'll be looking at.
0: And Elizabeth, are there specific tax implications around the timing of when the funder comes in?
3: Yes, there are. And in particular, Most of the time what we see is that the funder wants to come in at a time when golden brick has been achieved, what you may ask is golden brick. Golden brick is when I the developer can say that I've done enough construction work that I am in the process of developing and constructing a residential a residential site. And that means that my onward supply to the uh, to the forward funder who's purchasing the land is going to be a zero-rated supply, and zero-rating you will have heard me say many times is to mix one's metaphors the holy grail of VAT because it means I don't charge the consumer either the funder any VAT, but it, but I am making nonetheless a battable supply, and so I can recover any VAT. That has already been charged to me subject to kind of normal rules about VAT so golden brick once you have broken ground and started putting those first bricks on top of the foundations that's normally the sweet spot because that's a sweet spot both from a VAT perspective but also an SDLT perspective because that means the forward funder it will have fundamentally two contracts going forward with the developer. One is the purchase of the land, which will of course attract SDLT, but the second is a development agreement. And as long as we adhere to some time-honored principles set out in the prudential case and, and similar similar guidance, that should mean that with care, that no SDLT is paid on the development contract and you only pay SDLT on the land price. So that's your sweet spot. Golden brick, but not too far on. Okay,
0: thank you. Um, Helen, do you just want to sort of talk us through how the funding risk profile is different in respect of a BTR development scheme?
2: Sure, thanks, Marie. So, there's a number of things really we need to consider here because traditionally, when you hear the words forward funding, you might think of Amazon, for example, in the current market, taking a massive warehouse somewhere uh, and Committing to that under what's known as a pre let agreement. So, from a fund's perspective, securing the tenant and effectively securing the capital value happens before the fund is committed to the scheme. And so, if you like, you're bulletproofing the future investment. And that links into the developer's profit as well, because the developer gets the profit when the letting takes place. BTR is a bit different because there's a couple of things really. First of all, if we just stick with the Letting profile of the development. Obviously, with a BTR scheme, you don't have 200 tenants signing up three years before the scheme is built. What you have is the um, hope and opportunity that once you've got your completed building, people move into it and they go like hotcakes. So that is a different risk profile to a, a pre-let scheme, and the risk is built into the pricing. Obviously, there are there are certain benefits. Um, Of BTR versus private sales because the uh, general view is that in BTR schemes you can let the units much faster and at a much uh, faster rate than you can sell units in a a build to sell scheme. So that's the kind of letting profile and then before you get to your completed building the um, planning is likely to require that the private units can't actually be occupied until the affordable housing is ready for beneficial occupation and sold off to a provider. So the second part of that sold to a provider tends to be relatively straightforward, that's all set up early on in the um, development phasing, but the fund has to somehow get itself comfortable that those affordable units will be built from the stream of funding that is provided by the affordable housing provider, somebody, for example, like London and Quadrant. And if the funder is cautious, and many funders are, they'll want to try and protect themselves uh, so that they know there's always going to be enough money somewhere to build out those affordable housing units, because a built development that you can't occupy is no use to anybody. And so we've seen typically quite complicated escrow arrangements uh, to ensure that the fund protects itself. So yeah, different risks, different ways of dealing with them. So
0: Helen, you've brought us quite neatly on by talking a bit about the planning position. Um, We've been waiting with bated breath to bring Matt into the picture. Um, Matt, what complexities are there in respect of the planning position that are particular to um, a, a BTR scheme?
1: Thanks, Mary. I suppose the first thing to point out is that private private rentals aren't really anything new. They've always formed a, a, a part of and a significant part of providing housing in this country. I guess it's it's only recently, relatively recently, been given a designation and a definition by the planning powers that be, uh, and and contributing significantly not only to housing delivery in that formal manner but also. Uh, capturing some affordable housing as part of that provision that uh, c3 residential use is your is the use that you're looking for for build to rent which we've already mentioned uh permitted development rights uh which we also covered on podcast number two i think as part of our urban redevelopment project so um, that's go-
0: right what an excellent memory you have
1: Wow, well, quite um so i also made a, a fleeting appearance in that so you can <laughs> go back and and uh, review that uh, for the discussion over the availability of pd rights but i suppose what you don't want to be careful of is is sort of slipping into perhaps other forms of housing like co-living which tends to be sui generous, or or multi-tenanted flats which can be homes in multiple occupation then you end up in a c4 use so and they have the, their own different rules and regulations and things that you need to be aware of such as licenses so assuming we're all going down the path of of c3 from a planning perspective it's important for the local planning authorities to secure private rental um, in perpetuity um well not necessarily in perpetuity but for a significant period of time so it's not just a rental property that could suddenly disappear off into into private sale so what there are is a number of obligations that are usually secured by way of a 106 agreement that that prevent those those units becoming outright sale. So uh, usually it's a, it's a requirement that they're a covenant from the developer say that the, the unit won't be sold on the open market for a period of 15 years around that sort of time. That the the tenancies that are being offered to the, to the occupiers are, are longer than normal. They're given sort the rental certainty. Uh, as a result there's on-site management which is a little bit more um, prescribed than perhaps you would normally see in, in just a, a normal rental market and and there's a there's a sort of bill to rent covenant that exists that if or the principle at least that if those units end up being sell, sold that then this covenant needs to be released and the, and the local planning authority um, or council receives some funding as a result uh, of, of of releasing that covenant as a recognition that this isn't quite the the immediate realization of value that perhaps you'd achieve on, on an outright sale so it's it does require some significant input from a from a planning perspective and from a legal planning perspective um to secure those type of obligations in, in a 106 agreement
0: and Helen sort of started to touch on it earlier, but can you just give us a bit more detail about the linkage of uh, the affordable housing delivery to the occupation of the wider scheme?
1: Yeah, I think it, as, a, as a product, it's it's quite similar to all other affordable housing products in that you would ordinarily see that secured through a 106 agreement again, but those those affordable housing tenures need to be delivered before the occupation of a certain amount of private housing be all of it or 50 percent of it depending on how big your scheme is so again the local planning authority don't want to see those affordable hum- units lost um, you will ordinarily see a a covenant for those units to be used as affordable housing in perpetuity like you would for any other tenure but again that clawback mechanism comes back again so that if those for whatever reason, uh, and all the guidance, uh, both in London, certainly, the moral guidance, but the, the, the PPG nationally requires uh, a, a clawback mechanism to to effectively capture the value um, should any affordable housing, rented affordable housing at least, uh, be lost to the private market. I think in terms of the difference between affordable bill to rent and just afford any other tenure is really on viability grounds and that largely boils down to the way that viability affects or viability is assessed in relation to um, how the value is achieved by the developer because rental values will be secured over a much longer, lower period than than, than your ordinarily short term receipts from, from immediate sales. So whilst certainly in London, the Southeast, this, a planning section one agreement, section one hundred and six agreement, would would use the formulae that we're well used to um, to secure early and late stage reviews. Those formulae would need to be tweaked to to reflect that the nature of the values being being achieved and recouped um, as long um, as part of the the development. So it's um, it's certainly a, an interesting uh, tenure and an interesting uh, uh, area of affordable housing. Um, and one that, again, uh, is not simple and not straightforward. Uh, and certainly, um, if you can bear it, you can come and sort the likes of myself and Helen and Elizabeth to, to put you on the right track.
0: Thanks for that. Okay, so once the scheme's built out and operational, what are some of the longer term differences in running an asset of this nature? Helen, do you want to start us off with that?
2: Yeah, thanks, Mary. So once the building is handed over it's going to be all shiny and lovely and there'll have been a myriad handover requirements that have been required by the funder to get it into this lovely shiny state what we haven't really talked about much is the operator uh, and the operator is really key in, in any build to rent development and what we're seeing increasing in the market is operators are coming in uh, and becoming quite specialised in managing these types of platforms, partly because they need to um, minimise what's called leakage from the gross income. So if you imagine you have a, let's just call it a gross rent of £2,000 a month, that will include service charge, it will include everything really apart from utilities and council tax. And so what the operator needs to do is is minimise the uh, leakage from the gross income back to the net income for uh, repairs, maintenance of the structure, on-site facilities, of which there'll probably be quite a a lot and in a different way from, say, an office building, you have concierges, you have these post boxes available to tenants in 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 the ground floor, you have lovely sofa areas, very plush maybe a coffee machine. And it's a a very high end offering generally. So the challenge is making sure that this growth to net is at a level which provides the the income return that the the operator is looking for. And, And from what I can gather from market intelligence, it's not really a question of scale necessarily, apart from in terms of the expertise of these platforms. It does vary from development to development. It's not like a scheme of 100 units will have a leakage of X percent and a scheme of 300 units will have Y percent. It really is down to uh, the individual platform that is running and operating the development. And another thing we're seeing quite increasingly is that uh, the same operator will want to run the affordable as run the private. So the operator may have registered as a housing provider and entered into an agreement with the planning authority in order for it to run the entire the entire apartment base in the block rather than having somebody else like a you know a housing provider run 30 units and they run a a 70 so with that scale comes efficiency and they hopefully minimize their leakage of, of of the income so that's really on the um kind of operational income side and I think Elizabeth might talk uh, a little bit about a couple of tax implications on that side. Absolutely Uh, thank you very much Helen that's a
3: good question because of VAT that's fundamental sticking cost and in particular there is an issue when you talk about the more more sophisticated the bill to rent sector is and the more services that are being on charged To the client, because often it is the case that the landlord doesn't employ the concierge people himself. He might actually outsource that to somebody else. And so that means that the landlord is not paying wages to the concierge uh, people and the like, but he is actually getting a battable supply through from the um, personnel provider and that therefore the landlord has irrecoverable VAT that it has to charge on to the underlying tenant. Now, in the past, people thought about clever structures to get around that, but the better view at the moment is that, unfortunately, you are as a landlord, you either have that sticking VAT that you need to on charge to your tenants, or else you're going to have to become an employer of all the various uh, people. Thanks, Elizabeth. Thank you all so much for
0: joining me today. And as Matt said in his mini commercial earlier, um, if you would like any further insights from the team, then do get in touch with them. Um, Alternatively, you can follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, or you can go over to our website, forsters.co.uk, for more news and views from the firm, including on our dedicated BTR page. Thanks very much. See you soon. Forster's Northern Law podcast is for general information only and should not be considered to be professional advice. Forster's LLP accepts no liability or responsibility for any direct or consequential loss arising from the use of, reliance on, or reference to this podcast. Forster's LLP makes no warranty or representation as to the accuracy of the information contained in this podcast. The More Than Law podcast and all copyright in it is the property of Forster's LLP and it should not be used, reproduced or quoted whether in whole or part without Forster's LLP's prior written consent.